Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line. And now, here are your hosts, award-winning influencer and pioneering author of seven books, Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. Well, I, I think that if Zoe's arguing in favor of saying no and Shonda Rhimes is arguing in favor of saying yes, I, I think I need to write a book on the power of saying maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you should. Maybe, maybe oh, I should. Oh, maybe it's just the day of the week. You say yes on Mondays and no on Tuesdays. <laughs> yeah. it? It's not just that we don't want to be manipulated, but that we don't like to have other people treating us like objects. Yeah, so people within their organization. So how do they, how do, how is it they should convince people, influence people, persuade people that actually making change, and you know, that's what a lot of this is gonna be about, is the right thing. Well, Colin, you and I are pretty good about recommending books to each other. You've recommended several to me over the years that I've enjoyed. Good. You may recall that I was absolutely superlative in my recommendations of a book to you a couple of months ago that I picked up. Uh, it was called Influence is Your Superpower. Yep. And I told you it was one of the best books I had, had read in that genre, and I was super excited about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I am thrilled that we have the author of that book on with us today. Zoe Chance, welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to be here. It's great to meet you, Colin and Ryan. You're one of my absolute favorite people. And I would have written a book just to get to have this conversation. <laughs> That's, that is all I wanted out of this conversation. So yeah, we, we, we can will, end the podcast now. It's going to be yeah, a short will, one today, folks. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs> That's going in my voicemail. <laughs> let, me, let me briefly introduce Zoe and then we'll get into conversation. So Zoe's an assistant professor of marketing at the Yale uh, School of Management where she teaches the most popular class at the school on influence and persuasion. Before she, she became a professor, she was an actress. She managed part of the Barbie brand. She did door-to-door -door sales. I'm pretty sure she's performed surgery somewhere. I, <laughs> Zoe has done anything there is to be done. and has You done know what's really also. weird? If you tell me you've really done surgery. I've performed open-heart surgery on a pig. You've done surgery on a pig. It's not. It's not Peppa Pig, is it? <laughs> Nobody would do that to Peppa Pig. <laughs> that would be an interesting episode, wouldn't I it? I tried to come up with the most random thing I could come up with that you hadn't done. I failed. I, I failed. <laughs> of course, you've performed surgery on a pig. Zoe, thank you so much for being here. And I and I was not exaggerating. Uh, the book was amazing. It was really, really great. And I listened to the audio version of it. And um, and as I told you in an email, it was one of the best audio recordings of a book uh, I've ever listened to. I enjoyed it so much. It was great. Thank you so much. I had an incredible experience narrating it. And I got to have this great director on the other side listening in. And she was like a meditation teacher. And she <laughs> noticed every time I was not present she would ask me to do it again. So we did one million and two retakes of it. Wow. But I felt like I was becoming enlightened <laughs> during this process. <laughs> I didn't quite get there, but I think I made some progress. 
I mean, if, well, if you can record an audiobook and get to Nirvana, I think all in one <laughs> sitting, I mean, that's, that's just efficient. So you actually read the book y- yourself then? Yeah, I didn't know that it's actually rare that authors get to do sure. that. But a bunch of my friends have had to audition and they didn't get to narrate their books. And I got lucky. I didn't have to audition. I just did it. And I think it's because they trusted me that I had a theater background and they just figured I'd be fine. Good. Excellent. Well, obviously, the influence is your superpower is literally describing you. Well. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she has performed surgery on a pig. uh, And I assume that you just like walked into like a pig surgery station and persuaded your way into that. That's right. Um, I was like, hey, y'all need some help. They're like, oh, it's her. She's here. She can do it. Hand the scalpel over, people. No, I mean, I've been fired as a housekeeper. I've been fired as a file clerk. (laughs) I've done a lot of random things, but they're not all to be proud of. So let me start off, Zoe, with a hostile question. As you always do. As I typically do. This will be framed within what I already said, which is the the book is really, really great and uh, really insightful. I'm, I'm pretty familiar with this area. I still feel like I learned a lot in reading it. But let's talk about your motivation in writing this book. So the, the kind of the, the field of persuasion has been around for a long time and has all of these really great books in it, several of which you, you make passing reference to in your book, you know, going back to Dale Carnegie or forward to, to Bob Cialdini. What made you look at that space and say, yeah, no, there's still something to be said here. Like, I, I think that there's still something missing. What was that motivation? What's wrong with you, Zoe? <laughs> I guess it's hubris, but I love those books. And when I first started teaching this course that you mentioned at Yale School of Management, it's called Mastering Influence and Persuasion. And it was super popular since the day that I began because so many of us want to have more power and we don't know how to get it. But when I started teaching this course, I didn't understand that the skills I was teaching from these books and from my training and sales and marketing and some of the research that I had been doing, it was very transactional. I just didn't think of it that way. And people were telling me, students and executives, these are not skills that I can use with my employees, my boss, my partner, the people that I actually care about. They feel kind of manipulative and icky. And I'm a huge fan of Bob Cialdini. I loved his book, Influence. That's one of the reasons I came to grad school in the first place. And yet, when you think of the way that influence is described and then the way that it's practiced from this Bible of influence, it's not actually a kind of influence that you want to be on the other side of. So what I've tried to develop in my class and then the book are strategies and ways for influencing people that feel good on both sides so we can be more comfortable using them. Why do you think they feel bad then? Because, um, and let me give you, let me explain where I'm coming from. I used to be in sales years ago, sort of 20 years odd in, in, in sales. And when I was taught in sales, you were taught various different sort of sales techniques. And and I think we don't like to feel as human beings that we are being manipulated, influenced. So was it that there's a need out there for people not to feel that or, or what? Yes. And I think it's beyond that. It's not just that we don't want to be manipulated, but that we don't like to have other people treating us like objects, like we're just a means or an end to them getting what they want from us. We don't like people trying to get things from us. Like even I did a podcast interview last week 
that was a lovely conversation with a wonderful person. But in the preliminary email, he said, the goal is to get as much content from you as possible. And I listened to that and I thought, well, yuck. <laughs> I, I don't know if I, if I feel like having you get as much content from me as possible, even though, no, of course that is what I actually want to do. Like when people will reach out to people like us and say, I'd like to pick your brain. Like whoever told you that would be a good thing to say to somebody. Sure. So what we want to feel is recognized as human beings and we want to be treated like individuals with agency and freedom of choice. And we want to feel respected. I'm glad to hear you say that because my I'm distinctly non-sales oriented. And I think for some of the reasons that you are just articulated, a lot of the approaches in the, in the book, I, I felt like I could have subtitled your book, a Persuasion for Introverts. Like a lot of it is this kind of a, a humanistic approach to persuading people that I, I feel like was kind of missing. I didn't realize it until I read the book and saw your perspective on it. But I, I do feel like it was missing, at least from some of the persuasion literature as it existed before. Dale Carnegie talked about the importance of not faking interest in somebody, but developing genuine interest in people. So some of it was there, but yeah, some of it does feel a little manipulative or gross. Dale Carnegie's work and Cialdini's also, um, I would put Chris Voss in this category too, who wrote Never Split the Difference more recently. I love his stuff as well. There is an assumption that the goal of having influence is to get things from other people. And there's some kind of scorekeeping and tallying. And there's also been this background of, since Dale Carnegie wrote his book, and I think it was 1938, these people of privileges, like these white guys in positions of power who are writing about influencing each other. And there's a little bit of a bro-y, good old boys network kind mm. of idea, especially in the Dale Carnegie stuff, where they don't recognize differences in power. And that's just one of many dynamics of relationships. They don't recognize things like gender and race differences, identity differences that can be really important. Mm, there's also just this this reluctance to be influential that I think you're identifying, Ryan, as maybe persuasion for introverts. I'm definitely very strongly an introvert and I I feel very strongly about empowering other introverts. But the original title for this book, which was accurate, although I hated it, my agent put it on and it was called Influence for Nice People. Yeah. When we sold the proposal, yeah. it was called Influence for Nice People. My agent was Canadian and we joked that it should be called Influence for Canadians. Um, <laughs> And, and it's really too bad that those of us who do consider ourselves nice people mostly don't want to be called nice people. <laughs> and it sounds like an insult or it sounds patronizing or like influence for weak people, right? Yeah. But it is for those of us who actually care about other people and we're kind and we're well-intentioned and we want to do good things in the world and we want to collaborate with other people even more than we maybe want to compete with them and get what they have. This book is like the opposite of Donald Trump's book, The Art of the Deal, Right. in addition to the fact that Donald Trump didn't even write his book. So it's fraudulent at every level. Which, which is funny because you and Donald Trump are so alike in terms of personality I know, and I know, approach. And we're it's weird that you would write 
such different books. I know. <laughs> There are different sort of levels of influence, aren't there? Sort of, you can influence a, a bit about, well, which restaurant are you going to go to with some friends and you may be wanting to influence them to go to a restaurant that you particularly want to go to. Recently, some of our friends have got a different messaging app and you go, actually, you've influenced which messaging app that you're going to use amongst your friends. So, you know, there's that sort of m much more minor influence, isn't there? And then you've got, you go all the way up to, I was thinking of, you know, buying a car, which I hate, and people trying to influence you which car you're going to buy in the car buying process. And, you know, all the way up to sort of buying multi-million dollar computer systems. I'm presuming that it's the same type of influence and the way that you get that influence is similar. Am I correct or not? The psychology is the same, and I would go even bigger and broader than the multi-million dollar purchase to how are we going to solve the climate crisis and how do we figure out public health yeah, so that yeah. the Good pandemic point. doesn't happen again. And the psychology of influence, whether we're talking about personal relationships or we're talking about purchases or we're talking about cultural changes on a societal level, all comes down to individual people who don't just shift their behavior, but in particular to influencing people to want to say yes. So starting with a restaurant example, the goal for me of teaching influence is not that you will be able to get your friends to go to the restaurant that you want to go to, but that you will be able to communicate your ideas, your great ideas, including with what restaurant you want to go to so that other people want to say yes. And so your friends would be excited about the idea of this restaurant, not just that you've gotten them in some manipulative way to say yes. Or if we're talking about purchases, you're happy about the car buying experience or you are happy about this multi-million dollar purchase. You don't experience regret. A lot of people experience regret after a manipulative kind of influence situation or sales, and that we all want to work together on issues like the climate crisis, which is my personal issue of greatest passion, where we need to be supporting each other and we need to be picking each other up every time we fall down, we fail, we have a lot of setbacks, and we need to help each other keep going. So there are new great ideas and there's just ongoing motivation and influence and sharing the positive vibes. So yes, that was a long way of saying, Colin, yes, that yes. The psychology is all the same. Sure. So so maybe I could, let, let me try and get a bit practical with you and, and pose you a question that, that I think that our listeners will be interested in. So let me try and set a bit of the scene for you, because I think this would be a real, real help to people, actually. One of the problems that people that listen to this show has is that a lot of organizations talk about we want to improve our customer experience okay and lots of organizations set their self on the path to do that but the reality is that it doesn't happen a lot uh, we did a show not so long ago with the president of the american customer satisfaction index 
who basically told us that between 2010 and 2019, only a third of organizations actually improved their customer experience. You didn't see that as a lot? Actually, I'm heartened by that. I think that is a lot. Oh, I I didn't. But in in any case, it's probably devolved a great deal since 2019. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, it, I mean, the the American Customer Satisfaction Index at the moment so it's the lowest its point it's been for seventeen years. Mm. But I guess the point I'm trying to get to is this: is one of the challenges that people listening to the show have is how do they influence people? How do they influence people to understand that improving the customer experience will affect the bottom line? So influencing people within their organizations. Yeah. So people within their organizations. So how do they? How, do, how is it they should convince people, influence people, persuade people that actually making change, and you know that's what a lot of this is going to be about, is the right thing. So I'm just wondering if you could sort of help shed any insight on what they should be trying to do. Sure. I have two big ideas related to this that I'm happy to share. And the first one is that it's going to be very hard to improve the customer experience without improving the employee experience and expecting employees to serve customers in a way that has customers feeling welcomed, happy, valued, and happy to come back again is sure really, really hard if your employees aren't feeling that way. And if they are, it's actually not that hard. But the second thing is that the idea of improving customer experience is quite vague. Sure. So the question is, what does that mean? And what part of a customer experience should we or could we focus on? And the one that I would suggest is ease and in particular, the perceived ease or perceived friction. This has been found in many, many studies to be the crucial factor determining things like customer loyalty, and word of mouth, and in particular, negative word of mouth, where there's this metric that's called the customer effort score. And it's an underused marketing metric. And I know you know about it, but most people in marketing in the world don't because the the marketers who created it, I think were good at marketing research, but not as good at promotion. (laughs) This customer effort score is essentially the question, how much effort did it take? to do that thing you were trying to do. People who experience high effort will almost certainly complain. People who experience low effort will almost certainly not complain, regardless of what the actual outcome was. And with loyalty, this is, again, much more significant factor in customer loyalty than customer satisfaction. In many large studies, including you'll have studies of 100,000 customer interactions. Sure. So the interesting thing about this, though, besides how powerful it is, is that it's really measuring perceived ease and not actual ease because you're just asking people, hey, how easy was this? So this isn't about decreasing the amount of time, for example. It's about decreasing things that are annoying. I was trying to order tickets to a poetry event this morning and I go to order tickets and they say, you have to click your email. You have to go to your email and then click a link. So I go to my email. The thing isn't there. I go do some other thing. I come back to my email. 
there's the email, there's the link, and I click on it and it says, too bad, it's expired. It was only valid for 10 <laughs> minutes. And I, I have to work so hard to go to the damn poetry event. How exclusive that, is this poetry event? It, um, it's, the guy is a MacArthur genius. It's very hmm. exclusive. Apparently. But it's just, it's ridiculous. And it's not that it took me a great deal of time. In fact, the total amount of time is only one minute, but my annoyance is growing exponentially with every little step. Have you got a business problem? And would you like us to help? Would you like your business problem addressed on the show? All you need to do is go on our website and record your pickle. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash pickle. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash pickle. And hit the big red button. We look forward to hearing you on the show. Zoe, whether we're talking about you know change within an organization or, or we're talking about change across a society for something like global warming... It's not enough to just persuade somebody that it's a good idea. Now we need to kind of incite action. We need to change behavior. Do you see that as part of the same persuasive process? Or is that like a separate step that needs to be taken? Do we need to have a process for persuading someone's heart and a different process for persuading their mind and a different process for persuading them to change behavior? Or is that more integrated? How how do you think about that? A lot of us can relate to this, what researchers call the intention behavior gap, or I've heard it called the say-do gap, where actually even when you do persuade people that something is a good idea, they don't always follow through, and that includes yourself, right? So all of us who've had New Year's resolutions, I shouldn't say all of us, 70% of us who make New Year's resolutions, we fail, and I'm always in that 70%. (laughs) And that's why we have these resolutions, because it's been hard already to do that thing. Typically, time back to this topic of ease, again, typically it's friction that explains the difference between decisions or motivation and actual behavior. Sometimes you don't need to persuade people that it's a good idea. You can just make it easier for them to take action. An example of this and how a participant in one of my workshops very, very simply put this ease principle into action was he ran a seminar company. And the way that their company profits is by having repeat business from people who show up to an event. And they already got you there. They have your contact information. Maybe they have your payment information. He wanted to make it as easy as possible for people to come back. So their low-tech solution was they just printed out a sheet of paper, put it in every chair at every event, and there were boxes to check. And it just said, which of our future events would you like to come back to? Click here and we'll enroll you. And they increased their profitability by 13% in one year just by putting these sheets of paper in the seats. So that was easy. And this person was in charge of the company. But a lot of the people that I train and teach and talk with aren't the CEO and they're not running the business. And we have to influence and persuade other people that we're not the boss of anyone in large organizations. And actually, even if you are the boss, you still have to influence and persuade other people to want to say yes. So there's a process that I teach that I believe is the secret to influencing group decisions. And I'll share it with you now because I think that will be helpful. I learned recently that there's 
a Japanese word for it. It's called nemawashi. But I'll teach you the specific way that I do it. What nemawashi means in Japanese is cultivating the roots. And it's a consensus building process. And it's not just for situations where you need to have consensus. This would be even in a situation where there's a vote or even in a situation where it's a dictatorship and one person is going to make the decision. What happens if you don't do this preliminary influence work in a group meeting where you share your big idea is that people can be very easily biased by whoever speaks up first. Mm. If the first person is critical, that's easier for the second person to be critical. And your ideas can just die on the vine very quickly. That's what you want to avoid. I know all of us in the conversation and listening can relate to times this happened. You had a great idea. You knew it was the right course, but then it it just fizzles out before you get a chance to put it into action. So only when it's something that you care about actually investing the time in to have the best possible chance that your idea will succeed. You have pre-meetings with three different types of people. It's not with everybody in the group. And who you meet with, how many depends on the group. But the first people or individuals you meet with are those with power who are decision makers because others look to them for their input. And because these people have power, right, to say yes or no. When you share your great idea, you're asking their advice and you're asking their advice about the idea. You're also asking their advice for the influence process. You get their take on the politics and what it will take to have this idea succeed when you share it. So by giving you advice, they're feeling like part of your team rather than somebody that you're trying to influence. And then the next group of people that you reach out to, and this these are one-on-one conversations or meetings. The next ones are anyone you anticipate will be resistant. Could be someone who's generally skeptical, could be someone who maybe stands to risk something if your great idea happens, or someone that you just, you anticipate they won't like it. You share your great idea. And when you do this in all these conversations, you just share the bare bones version of your great idea, and I'll explain why in a moment. Share the bare bones version. You're asking what they think for their feedback, for their advice. These people, you're asking their advice about how to solve any concerns that they might have. And then the third person or group of people you reach out to are people you anticipate will be your allies. Maybe they're your friends. Maybe they'll benefit from the great idea. Maybe they're like-minded in some way. These people are probably willing to support your idea, but they're likely to not be vocal about it unless you actually ask them. So again, you share the bare bones version, you get their advice about making the idea better, and you ask them, will you speak up in the meeting in favor of this idea when I share it? They commit to it. Then, when you share your idea in the meeting with everybody, first of all, you have done whatever you can to improve it based on the advice that you sought, which was legitimately you being open to influence, the idea legitimately is better. So it benefited in this way. And because people have been able to give you input, they feel like part of the process of creating this better idea. And the skeptical or resistant people, you share any key concerns that they might have had so that 
they are not antagonizing you. They're welcomed into this collaborative process. They're not getting ahead of the objection. Yeah. So, and, and this is something that we do in sales, right? We share the objection. You might be thinking, you might be wondering if, right? So you can do this after you talk with them. And then critically, you get to frame their concern, which is very, very powerful. You might be wondering if I'm qualified to conduct surgery on a pig, but <laughs> let me explain to you. Yeah. Yes. And then your allies, of course, are speaking up. There's this third feature that people get excited about, but it's honestly the smallest part of all of this. But body language, when you're in physically in a room of people, and this can happen on Zoom a little bit less too, but when somebody hears an idea that they recognize, they're nodding their head and it looks as though they're nodding in agreement. So the people who haven't been part of those pre-meetings, they're hearing the idea for the first time. They look around and they (laughs) see the key decision maker and others you've already talked to nodding their heads. And this builds positive momentum for your great idea. So Nemawashi pre-meetings, you share key concerns. This is my best advice for any kind of influence in a group when you share your great ideas. That's really great. Yeah, no, it's a really good bit of advice, and I don't think uh, people do that enough in my experience. I know we're, we're coming to the end here, but there's one question I've been dying to ask you, Zoe, since I read the book. You have an entire chapter on saying no, kind of the importance of saying no to things, in a book about persuasion. Why? What is what is the role of saying, in some ways, somebody saying no to somebody else is kind of the opposite of persuasion. It could be, and you address this in the book itself, but you know, it could be seen as kind of the, the end of influence. And yet you, you have a chapter advocating for empowering yourself to say no to things. So how, how does the idea of saying no fit into the persuasive process? How does learning to say no make you more influential to other people? It does seem kind of weird, doesn't it? (laughs) And this is also the very first challenge in the MBA course that I teach. And by the way, I'll mention for listeners that I'll have a free course coming out globally in the fall that's called How to Ask for Anything, which is made up specifically of influence challenges like this one. You start with 24 hours of saying no to everyone who asks you for something or invites you to do something to start to realize how, first of all, almost all of us are people pleasers even more than we already knew ourselves to be. And when you realize that, you internalize it and you go, oh my God, I've been treating my time, my most valuable resource, like a public good. And just people, anyone gets it if there's space on my calendar. So you just literally realize I could have been so much more influential my whole entire life if I had learned how to say no. Practice can help you get more graceful at it, in particular being warm. It's kind of a resource conservation argument almost. Like This is the first piece of it? Yeah. Yeah, you you just you can't have a lot of influence if you're tapped out, exhausted, and you have nothing left, right? If you give everything to other people. But secondly, when you get comfortable saying no, you realize that it's not personal to the other person and they're not going to hate you. It doesn't have to be a big deal. And this has an almost magical transformational quality. 
Whereas you get more comfortable saying no. You get more comfortable with the idea of other people saying no to you. And so you get more comfortable asking and inviting them to do things because you know it's not the end of the world and it's not personal and they don't hate you if they say no to you. And what happens is then you're asking them in ways that are just more welcoming, comfortable, enthusiastic, low-key, and easy for them to say no makes them more inclined to say yes. So this is why you saying no is the first step of becoming someone that other people want to say yes to. I love that. Mm, Very good. Yeah. It's also really, really fun. So everybody listening, <laughs> I encourage you to try it. It feels great. There was that film, wasn't there, that, um, I can't, was it Jim Carrey that, that did the opposite? He said yes to everything. Did you ever see that one? I didn't see it. Was it good? Yeah, it was. Yeah. He basically, whenever somebody asked him to do something, you know, crazy, jump out of an airplane, whatever else, he he had to say yes. Basically. Colin, who are you hanging out with that is asking you to jump out of airplanes? Well, yeah, and that's another story, mate. I, I guess. Yeah, Shonda Rhimes has a book called The Year of Yes, where she tries saying yes to everything. And I've heard other people say that saying yes to everything was transformational for them. And I guess it just depends what stage you're in in your life. And just starting to open up again after the pandemic could be a time where a lot of us have lost our social graces and we've become hermits and maybe it's time for some people to say yes if you feel like that's the right thing for you and if you're someone who's feeling burnt out in any way it's maybe time to practice saying no yeah no absolutely absolutely well i I think that if zoe's arguing in favor of saying no and shonda rhymes arguing in favor of saying yes i i think i need to write a book on the power of saying maybe maybe (laughs) (laughs) maybe you should Maybe, maybe or, I should. Or maybe it's just the day of the week. You say yes on Mondays and no on Tuesdays. <laughs> yeah. So you've given us some really good practical things, Zoe. Uh, and normally at this point, we would ask people to say, if there was one thing to do, what would you go away and do? So is there anything you want to add, add to that just briefly at the moment? I'll make it super brief, but... My very favorite influence question for people to ask is what I call the magic question. And the question is just, what would it take? And I've written about and talked about the psychological nuances and examples of how this works. But if you just put it into action, experiment yourself, and this includes small situations like what would it take for your kid to clean their room, big situations like what would it take for you to get that raise or promotions, you will find that this question is transformational and feels magical. Right. Very good. Good. And if people want to get hold of you, then how do they how do they do that? In the spirit of making things easy, if you're on LinkedIn, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I would love that. And if you would like to get influence insights infrequently and learn about this free online course that I have coming up, things like that, come to my website, zoechance.com. Great. Good. Any last bits from you, Ryan, before we shut the show? Uh, no, I just, I'll, I'll pitch the book again. I've actually listened to it twice now. I listened to it initially and then again in preparation for this 
chat and I could not have enjoyed it more. It was really, really great, insightful, and then just a, a pleasure to listen to if you're into the audio format. So go pick it up. We'll also put a link in the in the show notes to the book as well, and obviously to uh, Zoe's uh, website as well. So thanks very much, Zoe, for uh, joining us on the show. It's been really, really interesting. And we look forward to talking to everybody next week. Cheers. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcasts. We look forward to talking with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.